You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another Walker webcast. It's uh, my great pleasure to have my friend Chris Lee join me today. I would say after Susan just let us in, we were out at the National Multifamily Housing Council meetings in Las Vegas last week, and um, Susan walked up to me and she said, I was walking down the hallway and someone walked up to me and said, you're the woman who does the introduction on the Walker webcast. And she loved the fact that someone had recognized her from the intros on the Walker webcast. So Susan, thank you. And I'm glad you're getting some notoriety for all your great work on the webcast. I will say NMHC was a refreshing start to the year. There were 8,600 people out in Las Vegas. And uh, I think that's an all-time record gathering of people in, well, it was the first time we've ever gone to Las Vegas, but it was a record attendance at NMHC. I would have thought that a lot of the services firms, as well as some of the lending firms, would have pulled back on the number of people there. That was an incorrect assumption. And I would say the general mood in Vegas, and I know there are a lot of people on this webcast who are there as well, was relatively positive. And I think Chris and I are going to dive into why is it that there is a general positive sentiment in the markets today, given most particularly Jerome Powell's actions last Wednesday, and then the jobs report that came out on Friday. But I want to get Chris's view on all that because his view is far more insightful than mine. Let me do a quick bio on Chris, and then I'm going to dive into our questions. So Chris Lee is responsible for KKR's real estate business in the Americas overseeing both equity and credit investing platforms in the region. He serves as portfolio manager for KKR Property Partners Americas and is currently vice chairman of the New York Stock Exchange listed REIT KKR Real Estate Financial Trust. Chris sits on KKR's real estate equity and credit investment committees and real estate equity and credit portfolio management committees in the Americas. Chris is a member of KKR's ESG committee, KKR's Global Inclusion and Diversity Council, co-chairs KKR America's Inclusion and Diversity Councils, and chairs KKR's Real Estate Valuation Committee. Prior to joining KKR, Chris spent three years at Apollo Global Management on their global real estate team, and early in his career worked at Goldman Sachs in the real estate principal investment area. Chris earned his MBA from Harvard Business School and his bachelor's degree in economics from Emory University. Chris is a former trustee of St. Mark's School of Texas. He currently serves on the board of sponsors for Educational Opportunity, SEO in New York, the PREA Foundation in Hartford, Connecticut. He's a trustee of Collegiate School in New York and is a member of the Dean's Advisory Council for Emory College of Arts and Sciences in Atlanta. So Chris, before we dive in and back up a little bit to your education and, and what made you the person you are today, of those people listening they go back and they say, wow, I just listened to the Walker webcast and Chris Lee said this. What's the this that they ought to remember out of this webcast? <laughs> well, first of all, Willie, thanks a lot for having me. And um, you know, Susan, thanks for all your help getting this prepared. I would say that this is my parents instilled a, a really strong work ethic in my brother and I. And I think that that's the one thing that's been kind of consistent through my life is if you work hard, 
like my dad would always say, if you work hard, you can get lucky. And I think that that is, um, I think any young person should think about that as they embark on their career and whatever it is you, you want to do in life. And from a market standpoint, you and I talked a little bit yesterday about your general outlook, and we're going to dive into this deeply, but is it a relatively defensive and kind of wait and see posture, or is it now is the time to get active in, and to be in the markets? Yeah, I mean, I think what you said in your opening remarks, Willie, is, is somewhat consistent with our view in the markets. We're much more constructive in terms of putting capital to work to start the year, clearly the last six months of last year, especially where we were at the end of the year, there's tremendous amount of uncertainty. I think some of the scenarios that we're looking at from an economic perspective are a lot more range bound. So we're out looking at acquiring properties. We're actually getting much more serious about bids in the market. And then we're very active on the securities and lending side as well. So we're active in the markets. We're putting capital to work and we feel like it's you know pretty attractive risk reward environment that we're, we're sitting in right now. It feels like most of the market is sort of waiting for an event, if you will. I think a lot of people have kind of pinned up, once the Fed stops raising, I can get active again. I would also say the general sentiment I got in Las Vegas last week from a lot of investors was, I just don't want to be the first one to dive into the pool, which quite honestly, I think is kind of interesting because not criticizing anyone who's listening in, but everyone bought at the peak and it's okay to kind of put those buy at the peaks to the side and not feel like they, as an individual or as a firm, kind of didn't look that great in doing that. But no one wants to be the one who goes and buys now when everyone else isn't buying and say, oh, they bought too high. And so it seems like everyone's yeah. trying to perfectly price the bottom, even though they were happy to pay at the top. Are you waiting for a seminal event or is this sort of just, it builds as the overall market evolves? There definitely is comfort in numbers, but our view is that we're not waiting for you know any group of investors to come back to the market. A lot of what we're seeing right now, it was about rate volatility. People didn't know whether they were going to five, six, or seven percent on short rates and where the tenure might end up. It comes back to the scenarios are more range bound now. We don't know whether we're going to high fours or low fives, but I think six, seven, that's probably off the table. And you look at where we were summer of last year, we had inflation prints of nine percent. Now we're into six. It's clearly coming down what the Fed is doing is working. So we're active. And then it comes down to pacing. And so it depends on the pools of capital you have. But in our view is if we're pacing appropriately, then we're not trying to call the bottom, but we think that the risk reward in the market is, like I said, very attractive. And we're looking at yields. They're at much higher levels than they've been. We're looking at replacement costs. We're looking at you know development pipelines coming down. So we're looking at a bunch of different factors that give us a more of a um, you know, green light than a red light in a market like this. So given that KKR manages over $500 billion of capital, Chris, and the breadth of the platform, I would, I mean, many people on this call are, if you will, very focused just on the commercial real estate space and very focused on commercial real estate in the United States. The breadth of the platform that you sit in gives you a very distinct view on sort of global capital flows and whether capital is flying to what asset class, what geography, et cetera, et cetera. Does your view as it relates to commercial real estate and in the Americas go across, if you will, KKR writ large, or is your viewpoint as it relates to, we think we're a little bit more range bound now, things are looking like we can get into it and we we wanna be very consistent here and not just kind of like jump in at one moment and pull out at the next. Is that similar to KKR writ large, or is that really more of a specific U.S. commercial real estate view? 
When you think about commercial real estate values, we think there are kind of three broad things that drive valuation. You've got fundamentals, then you have capital flows, and then you have the macro. And all of those are really things that we're observing outside of our real estate business. You said, let's start with fundamentals. Well, who makes real estate decisions? Landlords don't. We could sit around and talk to each other all day. We own real estate. The people that make real estate decisions are consumers and corporates. And then you think about well, what drives you know, some of the big moves in real estate. It's these consumer preference changes and then demographic shifts. And then it's a rate-sensitive asset class. So we're always trying to figure out what's happening in the macro, what's happening with GDP. And of course, the last 12 months, it's been dominated by what's happening with rates. And then I think your point on capital flows is really important. And so we've seen some pretty constructive activity to start the year. I mean, we have a huge corporate credit business. The high yield market has come in you know, 70 basis points to start the year. There's not a lot of supply. You're starting to see you know, real signs around primary issuance. And so when you think about what can move money out of real estate, it's because you can go get a lot of yield somewhere else. And if that kind of alternative becomes less yieldy because spreads start coming in, then you can see the capital markets on the real estate side get more constructive. So what we're seeing in high yield makes us feel better about what we're seeing in CMBS spreads. And by the way, CMBS spreads have come in. So we're always looking at these big kind of tectonic plates that are moving around capital markets and the macro, which then informs our decisions on how we want to think about risk in the real estate markets and even specifically around different asset classes and geographies. So you have been a very large buyer of both CMBS as well as B pieces on CMBS. How do you feel about that market right now, given your comment on high yield? I mean, the CMBS spreads to start the year have come in a lot. I mean, the first conduit deal of the year was um, very well, you know, oversubscribed. There was a uh, you know a SASB deal by uh, you know one of our, our large uh, you know brethren in the market that was you know went very well you know last week and is still kind of out in the market. And so we're seeing these signs that are saying people are coming back in the market, people are taking risk. And by the way, there are a lot of institutions that have to put cash to work because they have liabilities, they have other things that are, um, are driving that desire to, to go buy assets. And in a world like this, where there's not a lot of new primary issuance or supply, then that drives spread compression. So we think that the CMBS market is starting to heal, and that's across the conduit and the, the SASB market. But we're seeing, oh, and even uh, floating rate CLOs. I mean, we're seeing all of that you know, come in to start the year. Are you... Given where the markets are right now, are you? I mean, you've got a huge equity business and you've got a huge credit business. If you will, overweight on the equity side right now, given where valuations have moved, or are you overweight on the credit side, given the liquidity we're seeing in the debt markets and the need for your capital? I mean, listen, that's one of the nice things about our business. We built a business where all of the risk prices at one investment committee. So we're if we're making a loan, or we're buying securities, or we're going to buy an individual property or a portfolio, all of that risk rolls up to one investment committee. So we are seeing relative pricing across a first mortgage loan all the way through looking at you know the equity at the bottom of a capital structure. It definitely still is a lender's market. And so lending is a, um, there's just scarcity of capital given the banks have, have, have pulled back you know, since the end of last year, starting to hear some signals that they're coming back. But right now we definitely think it's a lender's market. So the relative value in Credit, whether it be securities or um, or direct lending, is still quite attractive. Like I said at the beginning, we are starting to see on our equity side, we're starting to see assets that are pricing at levels that we are starting to get excited about. Whether it's discounted today's replacement cost or whether it's um, 
you know, the yields, whether it's the risk profile, the assets that we can buy, given some of the, you know, the REITs and core players aren't in the market. There are a lot of things that we're seeing that are attractive on equity, but I'd say the rel val is probably still, you know, probably skews a little bit towards credit right now today. Ref reported, I believe last night or first thing this morning, um, earnings had a write-off of, I believe it was a loan on an office building. What's your take as it relates to credit kind of generally speaking on commercial real estate, but more specifically, let's use that as a launching pad to go into office for a moment. Listen, I would say real estate credit more broadly, this cycle was all about interest rates. Rates were you know, super low coming out of COVID. We had a tremendous amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus that went into the market. In that type of environment, real estate you know, clearly did very well, but we didn't have overbuilding and we didn't really have oversupply and we really didn't have overleverage. So when you look at even in a more normalized rate environment that we're in, or even a more restrictive rate environment, a lot of asset classes are still performing well on the fundamental side, primarily housing assets and, and industrial. And so we're not really seeing you know, credit issues in those types of deals. And then for our lending business, we're generally lending to top sponsors. We're lending in the most liquid markets, you know, moderate LTVs. Office, I think, is a totally different asset class right now in terms of the fundamentals are more challenged there. And I think some of this is you know, secular, right? We did a massive work from home experiment, you know, starting in March of 2020, that every firm across every industry did it starting that, you know, weekend, we all went home. And a lot of places are trying to figure out how do, how do we get more efficient? How do we compete with very tight talent market? I mean, unemployment for college educated workers is 2%. I think it was 1.8 in fall of last year. So there, there's basically no ability to access talent. So some types of fields are trading on, oh, you can work hybrid, you can work a few days a week. So everyone's looking at their real estate footprints as well as their their headcount and trying to figure out how to optimize that in an environment where you know companies are much more focused on you know margins and, and more traditional metrics versus just growth. And so I think office will continue to be challenged. And then there's of course this sustainability overlay and you know capital markets overlay that that, that comes into play there. So I think there'll be clear winners and losers, but I think uh, offices, you almost have to take that as a separate sub-asset class within the broader real estate market because it's it's going through a, a secular change, just like retail did over the last 15 years. KKR is back in the office. You learn <laughs> the investment banking business being in the bullpen at Goldman Sachs, and you know how much you learned having someone sitting across the way and showing you a model or talking about something <laughs> or hearing a a partner or managing director make a comment about how you interface with a client or what have you. What's your take as it relates to back to office versus remote? And do you think that there is a paradigm that allows for both to work together? Or do you think that it's got to be one or the other? So I think your point on how young people learn, I mean, I did sit in a bullpen at Goldman Sachs and there were a few things about that experience. I worked a lot. I learned a lot. And I made some unbelievable friends that are friends of mine still to, to this day. And that I started at Goldman Sachs, I guess now 20 over 22 years ago now. And so you can't really do that in a hybrid environment. And then let's talk about you know, what we were doing at KKR. We've been back in the office since um, really summer of 21. We moved from a uh, you know, different space into our, our headquarters here at Hudson Yards, which is, is where I am today. We are an in-office culture. We just function much better in the office. People can collaborate better. We're an idea business, we're a relationship business. How do you come up with ideas if everyone's, you know, people aren't together? 
how do you build relationships internally, the types I was talking about where you can really pick up the phone and get access to information across any asset class, any market in the world, you have to build those relationships by being face-to-face. And so we believe that our culture, we get the best out of our culture and we deliver best for our investors if we're in the office. And so there are, I think, a lot of functions out there though. We're not, I think, indicative of every single office user in the market. There are a lot of places where the job is to come in and sit a cube, you do a job and then you, and you go home. And there are hundreds of millions of square feet of office that's filled up with people doing more things like that. And I think that's where there's a big debate on how much office space people need for that. But at KKR, we're in the office. I like being here every day. When I'm home, if I'm sick or something, I'm, I'm bored and <laughs> there's no one around. My kids are at school. My wife is staring at me like, Why, wh- wh- what are you doing here? So I like to be at the office. Does it concern you at all, Chris, that I know you took additional space in Hudson Yards and the space that you picked up was space that Meta had originally leased from Related and you picked it up from them. Does the sort of reversal as far as tech companies were the big acquirers of space in 2022? You saw yep. the leasing volumes in 22 and it was, you know, Meta was taking this space in Austin and, you know, Google was taking space there. And they're all now both shedding space as well as shedding employees. Is this, a, from your view, is this a kind of a tectonic plate that shifted as it relates to office usages of the technology firms? Or is it just a, a timing issue as it relates to them having to scale down and giving back some space as they're trying to right-size their operations? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, we're the beneficiary of that. We need more space. It's going to be great when we can occupy that. But I think it's more indicative of, of what you're saying, which is a broader theme in the market. You had basically big tech, but you also had um, emerging tech that were the marginal users, not just in Silicon Valley, they were the marginal lessees in a lot of markets. And they were taking big blocks of space. They were leasing you know, way ahead of their growth projections. And when you think about you know, companies whose cost of capital for several years is really zero, they added a lot of headcount and then they added a lot of real estate. And you think about what are the two biggest costs for a company, if now you're all of a sudden you're focused on margin. Well, it's people in real estate. And so we're just going through a rationalization period with some of these companies, but I think that is going to have a really significant impact on some of these office markets where you have these companies pulling back at a time when every company is rationalized their office space. So you have some of these markets that are that are quite dislocated when you add in the sublease space availability rates in the high teens into the 20s. And then you have a market like a like a DC, for example, and you have the federal government for different reasons, not really bringing people back to the office, but it goes back to this competition for talent. I mean, a commute is actually can be a tax. So you have different markets that are dealing with different things, but I think across the board, everyone is looking at, at their space. But I think, you know, in a lot of the um, big markets, tech was a big marginal user or big marginal lessee of space in those markets. Your private equity if you will, side of the business owns hundreds of businesses, maybe even thousands of businesses. And I'm assuming that as you sit around the water cooler and talk to people, they sort of say, you know, we're working on cost savings of outsourcing technology to India, for instance, we're working on cost savings of this and that, and that there's always kind of a theme of the day. Is one of those themes on the private equity side, the office footprint of the portfolio companies that you have, and that being kind of a long-term potential cost savings, or is there any conviction on the private equity side as it relates to that? It's interesting you ask this question. It's kind of interesting the way our, our firm works. We got ahead of this you know, really in the 
before the pandemic, we weren't really investing a lot in office. We have some office exposure. I guess that time we were investing our, our second US fund, but we had primarily focused on the Sunbelt. But if you look at what we started doing after COVID, we have, I think, done just a handful of office deals. And when you look at our opportunistic, our core plus strategy, it's, you know, you can count them on a couple fingers. And so a lot of what we were seeing was through our private equity look through. We actually surveyed a bunch of our companies during the pandemic. And I think we surveyed 50 or 60 of our US companies on a bunch of different real estate related topics, how they were thinking about talent nodes, how they were thinking about office space for those that it mattered to their logistics footprints, you know, how they're thinking about you know, retail, et cetera. Probably 30, 40 questions. Our macro team and our, our, our capstone team really led this effort. But when you look at what came back, it was very clear within a few months after the pandemic that people had office space high on the list. And so you're getting that from the C-suite of dozens of companies that we control. And then it's getting um, you know, reinforced by a bunch of our colleagues and partners who sit on the boards of these companies. And so we really took a shift. And if you look at our exposure to US office, our global portfolio, I think it's less than 5%. And so we really started shying away from this several years ago. But a lot of that was what we we're seeing through effectively the boardrooms of the companies that we control. And I'd think, Chris, similarly, you made a big play since 2018 in logistics. You've bought over $7 billion of logistics assets in the industrial sector since 2018. What are you seeing? And I think it's about 45 million square feet. What are you seeing in the logistics slash industrial space that you still like at this point? The fundamentals are still very strong. And when you think about what was really driving it coming out of um, you know, the GFC, it was the it was just how goods were reaching consumers. It was the you know, the onset of e-commerce. But what we've seen over the last several years is it's now shifted to onshoring, supply chain resiliency, supply chains moving from you know, just in time to just in case. And so a lot of the logistics build out is not just you know, this e-commerce migration, it's several other you know, factors and themes that are driving that, that need for space. And so it's also shifting where, you know, where goods are even showing up in the country. I mean, goods used, you know, a lot of goods would come in from you know, Asia, they go to the Port of Long Beach and they get distributed across the country. Well, now you're seeing a lot of those goods show up in you know, Savannah and Jacksonville and other ports on the East Coast going through the Panama Canal. So that even changes where logistics is, uh, is needed. So that also goes back to a lot of those um, you know, insights were things that, that our team and our colleagues were working on with our macro team and, and people in private equity. But we still feel good about the fundamental story there, and we're still seeing very strong leasing demand. And the nice thing is, like you said, we have a, a quite a large platform, so we're leasing every day, and you know, over a dozen markets, we're you know buying, we're selling, and so we have a very good feel for what's going on on the ground in those markets. But it's still quite positive. Is there anything from an industrial viewpoint, geographically, Chris, that you see evolving here? So, I mean, when you talk about, for instance, multi. There are a bunch of people who are saying, I want to stay away from sort of high political risk environments because of either rent control or something else. So I'm going to stay out of California and potentially New York, what have you. But at the same time, from a logistics standpoint, those are still New York, not so much, but obviously California and some of Texas, Louisiana have big ports that are very important for logistics as it relates to distribution networks. Is the geographic overlay that you have to keep in mind wildly different as you think about various asset classes that you're investing in? 
yes, we're always thinking about the quality of the cities. Because if you think about what creates real estate demand, it's population growth and then business activity. And so what makes a city attractive to businesses and people? Well, you need great physical infrastructure, you need great educational infrastructure. And that means, you know, universities and in and around these cities. And then you need, you know, people don't really think about this, but you need cultural infrastructure. And so you think about like what makes a city attractive to young people. You want to be able to go do things. And so like, why isn't Austin thrived over years? Well, you've got great cultural things for people to do. And, and you can't just go build those. You can't go create sports teams and create, you know, South by Southwest and film festivals and music scenes. Those are things that are part of cities that make them, if they're attractive for young people, then businesses are going to go there to have their talent. So why that's why people have gone to the Dallas's and the Atlanta's and some of these places because they're attractive. And then you've got cost of living and other things that, that come into play, but people want to you know, live in cities that are dynamic. So we are always looking at which geographies are going to get an outsized share of GDP growth. Because if GDP is growing at, you know, call it two and a half percent real, that is wildly distributed across different MSAs. And so there are di- some MSAs are shrinking, as we know, and then there's some MSAs that are growing, you know, very rapidly. And so we're always looking at that, re-underwriting that, re-underwriting what makes those cities attractive. And, and I think your point is also right. You're looking at the political environment and you know whether you can continue to attract you know great companies and great highly educated you know young people is there there are two things that come to mind on that the first one is kkr has vast resources you've got internal economists you can buy any research you need to and you're getting it across not only commercial real estate but on a much much wider sort of macro view across industries because you're investing in all industries etc where's your research come from in the sense of how much of it is proprietary? Were you using your own data feeds and your own analysis versus buying a CoStar report and or a you know real capital analytics report that most people who are listening in on this would go and, if you will, buy off the shelf research? Where's the are you taking basically public data and scrubbing it like most people do? Or are you doing a lot of proprietary research that you think gives KKR a, a unique insight into markets? I mean, listen, we're big users of co-star real capital right. analytics. And I think a lot of that data though is is backwards looking. It's it's what has happened. It's what has traded. It's what's in the newspaper. It's and so we need all of that data. And so like I said, we consume that, but we're always looking for what do we think is going to happen over the next three years, five years, 10 years. And so it's coming up with what are the themes that are going to be the GDP plus drivers of the economy. And it's comes back to Corporate strategy drives that, demographics, and then consumer behavior. We're trying to understand those three things because that ultimately drives how consumers want to access goods. Where do they want to live? How do they want to live? Do they want to work in offices? Or do they want to work hybrid? Where do companies want to hire people? Do they want them in the office or not? I mean, those are the decisions. Do they care about sustainability? Those are the types of questions we're always asking because those will inform us of where the world is going. And that's where we're trying to invest or where the world is not going. And then we can avoid sectors that we think are getting deprioritized from an economic perspective. So that's what we're spending a lot of our time doing. And that's why it's very important for us to be integrated with our colleagues in private equity, corporate credit, macro. That's how we invest. It's really interesting that you say, Chris, the, you know, kind of what are corporations doing? Because it feels like as much as 
the Fed is trying to slow things down and everyone's kind of focused on what's the Fed policy doing and how's that changing the world we're in, that many corporations are starting to take a different view about what 23 will look like and almost looking beyond any type of recession that might be out there, that it feels to some degree, particularly in the last week since the jobs report came out, that it was almost like, okay, Fed raised by 25, jobs report came out much healthier than anyone expected. Maybe we can kind of push through this from a corporate growth standpoint, even if the Fed's trying to slow things down. Am I misinterpreting the data or is that sort of the general sentiment you're feeling around with your private equity colleagues who are sort of investing in businesses and thinking about not just what 23 looks like, but 24, 25? A lot of our companies, a big input is labor. And you know we've got a great industrials practice here, consumer practice. And you look at you know, was fourth quarter real GDP grew two and a half percent. I think nominal was in the six range, but what's population growth in the country? It's sub 1%. And then take out immigration, what's organic population growth in the country? And so labor markets are extremely tight. And we're seeing that in these jobs reports. I mean, it also just shows how offsides the you know the Fed was in the first place. We had rates at zero, we were putting fiscal stimulus in, and now rates have gone from zero to almost five. And the job market, you know, hasn't blinked, and so it's. Uh, we we think that late that we think that's structural. Until we figure out how to grow our labor force, you're going to continue to have quite tight labor markets. And yeah, some of this might lag a little bit. We there are you know some layoffs, and I think we are focused on corporate earnings and you know seeing how um, you know companies deal with uh, you know margin compression where they've had a lot of margin expansion over the over the last several quarters. So. It is something we're focused on, but I think this the, coming back to these labor markets, they're extremely tight, and that's it. The you know kind of unskilled or lightly skilled labor, you know, you're still hearing a lot of construction markets are still um, you know tight, even though they've started to level off. But you know, when you look at unemployment on the college educated side, I'll tell you, it's, it's I mean the stats it, it comes out every month. When you look at I think it's the by educational attainment, it's it's sub two percent, and so it's just that number is. You can't change that unless we're growing our population or people are coming in the country. And all those people need to live somewhere. So you're overweighted both in your lending business as well as your property business on multifamily. What's your feel on multifamily? And if you can, anywhere, any general themes, I mean, to that point about college educated being under a 2% unemployment rate, that would say major urban center, A class or B class multi. Do you still like that given where valuations have gone? Or are you zigging more towards those unskilled, semi-skilled laborers who might be in a secondary or tertiary market that need workforce housing? So we play across the spectrum. I would say we focused on basically top 15 cities. Like we might buy workforce housing and you know, class A housing in the same city, but we're not really in the um, you know, what I call like secondary and tertiary markets. We do believe that these urban centers will continue to grow. And that that could mean a a city like where I'm from, Dallas, it's growing in many different pockets, but it comes back to, you know, you've got these places with big airports, you've got hundreds of thousands of college students and universities within, you know, a few hour flight. Those cities will continue to, in our view, out, outperform. Now, we like, I think, class A housing. We're, we're a big owner of, um, you know, of class A housing, but demand has to stay in check with supply. And so some of these markets, the, the thing that we are focused on is Supply pipelines are they are delivering, and it's mostly a certain type of product that's targeting this, um, you know, higher educated, uh, you know, tenant base. So you can have 
if you grow demand at 3%, but you go supply at five, you can rents can go down. It's, it's supply and demand have to be in check. So we are focused on these supply pipelines that in some markets seem a little bit elevated around a specific you know, product type. But longer term, we like housing, we like multifamily, we like you know, student housing in, in, in a lot of markets. And we have you know, long-term holds as well as uh, you know, more opportunistic uh, you know, plays that we've made across all of the housing sectors. A lot of your big private equity competitors got into the single family rental built for rent space and now have public vehicles that came out of their investments from the private equity firm. What's your take on SFR, BFR right now as it relates to an alternative to either single family or to multi? Yeah, we, we think about it as it's um, part of the rental housing market. And we own you know single family homes across many of the markets that we we like longer term on the traditional, you know, multifamily side. So we don't think about it much differently. Now you need to have a, a great platform because you're operating a scale. It's very different, you know, operating hundreds of homes in a um, you know, in a jurisdiction versus a 300 unit, you know, garden style multifamily house. So the a lot of the technology and the um, you know, and the infrastructure that we've built out through our operating platform is 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 very important. But we think about that as just part of the, you know, the broader housing market in we we're in there is an institutional investor, just like uh, you know the other forms of housing that we mentioned. If you were heading out, Chris, to raise a new fund today, and I'm assuming there are a lot of strategies that you all are constantly out talking about, but one of the issues that, that came up a lot when I was at at NMAC last week, as well as talking to a number of clients, is should return expectations come down? That as cap rates have adjusted, are we in sort of a, a structural shift? Are investor sort of return requirements permanently shifting and should you bring down your yields or should you hold with where it was and we're kind of at an anomaly right now? If you will, what's the KKR view on you're going out to raise some new multi-billion dollar fund? Have you shifted your yield expectations or are you holding of a print today would be the same as it was in 2019? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the short to medium term, our return expectations are higher and when you think about well, what's the component of a return, there's risk-free rates are significantly higher than they they have been since the financial crisis. So we're talking about now, you know, 13, 14 years, and then risk premiums are elevated on top of that. And so a lot of that is due to uncertainty, cost of financing. And so the unlevered returns that we are underwriting right now are, you know, kind of at the highest levels that we've seen in um, a number of years. And a lot of that is we're buying it you know, wider cap rates. And then with growth, even assuming, you know, not a lot of cap rate compression on the back end, we're assuming unlevered returns that are, you know, much higher. And that's why at the beginning, I was like, we're starting to get much more you know, excited about this investing climate because, you know, in our opportunistic fund series, we're seeing some very attractive, uh, very attractive deal profiles right now. But the, to answer your question, simply unlevered return expectations for us are, are higher. And we think we're seeing that across the market. And that's what's pushed you know, cap rates up for a lot of different asset classes. It's a really interesting comment coming from someone who, if you will, understands the global capital markets as well as you do and as well as KKR does. Because I do think that there are a number of people who are not as broad, not as wide as your platform is, who sit there and go, well, there's no way that yields can stay where they are given the pricing pressures that we've seen. And we need to kind of adjust 
our returns because uh, it's a very different it's a very different market today than it was just a year ago. It's reassuring to me, if you will, to hear you come out and say that, and and particularly given what you're seeing on the unlevered yields that you're getting on the both existing investments as well as prospective investments that you all are underwriting. Real estate in most um, institutional portfolios, it competes. It has to compete with equities and fixed income and other asset classes that yield infrastructure. And so if cap rates don't move in real estate, then a chief investment officer of an insurance company or a pension fund is just going to shift that allocation to high yield. And so when we're looking at you know, what was happening last year and cap rates were moving out, a lot of that was being driven by, you could go get high single digits buying you know, first lien bonds for a while. And so that capital has to flow where the attractive rel val is. It can't you know, stay in, um, in real estate unless real estate you know, adjusts. And then vice versa, if we end up in a world where risk premiums come down and you know, credit spreads come in and you know, base rates come back in over some period of time, then all asset classes, all risk assets can benefit that from that from a you know, multiple expansion perspective. So it's just having that, that view that there's a lot of capital that can move quickly and it doesn't have to be in real estate. It can, it can be in something else if someone can get a better return. Talking about the diversity of, if you will, capital flows from one asset class to the other, KKR's real estate platform is global. And while you're responsible for the US, you have a lot of input on what you all are doing in other places. You've got a Europe fund, you've got an Asia fund, you've got a Japan fund. As it relates to you know, where global capital is looking for a home as it relates to commercial real estate, is the US at the top of the, the pecking order right now? Or is there a real play in, in Europe for various reasons that Europe's the place to be, Asia the place to be, or more specifically, your Japanese fund? I think it really depends on where the investor is, is domiciled. Because with some of these interest rate moves, you've had some big currency swings you know, in the market. So it really depends on what's the investor's home currency and what are they really translating those returns back into. But we're seeing demand ac across the board for our products. Clearly, the second half of last year, when there's that much uncertainty in the market, when there's that much, you know, when you think about denominator effects or other asset classes going down in price, that definitely puts a lot of big institutional investors on pause, or at least um, makes it take them longer to make new commitments to funds. But I think ultimately, real estate is now an established asset class. When we think about the US, it's an established market, you know, rule of law, et cetera. So we believe that there will continue to be um, you know, a lot of demand for our asset class here and also around the world. I think what will really be interesting is how people make the decisions on manager selection and who they want to entrust with that capital. And so it goes back to what is your investment process? What is your differentiation? How do you make decisions? What information do you have access to? We think a lot of um, a lot of investors are really digging into that and really holding you know a lot of you know us and our competitors' feet to the fire on what is your secret sauce? Like why you and not someone else? Is there anything? I'm, I'm an investor uh, with full disclosure in the KKR Asia Fund on the private equity side, not on the real estate side. I'm just curious as it relates to your view on China, and I, I guess two kind of. Specific questions there. Peter Lineman, when he was on two weeks ago, Chris, he mentioned the fact that a big driver of hotel occupancy in the United States pre pandemic was Chinese tourism. And I heard him say that and thought about the fact that if you were to go and invest in a hotel today that had been occupied by a lot of 
Chinese nationals who came to the United States. And then it went down. If you have a bet on China opening back up and getting back to the tourism that we typically would expect from China, that wouldn't be a bad place to be right now because that asset, probably that asset value is way down. And that once they open up China, then everyone starts traveling back to the States and they'll go to those same hotels that had for whatever reason, from a booking agent standpoint, from a service standpoint, from a location, because there's something that Chinese tourists like to go see, that that might not be a bad bet right now. Are you all making any bets as it relates to kind of the macro political view on either the lockdown in China being released or tensions between China and Taiwan that says, we don't have visibility into that. We're just going to stay away until we see that type of a geopolitical potential friction point ease. Yeah. So listen, we've got a lot of expertise around China, given that we're investors there in, in our private equity business, as well as our real estate business. I'm not the expert on China, but I think the one thing that you said that we are focused on as it relates to US investing is the reopening of China. I mean, you're talking about second largest economy in the world that's kind of had rolling lockdowns for, you know, we're almost three years into this. And so that I think is a, you will have major implications, positive implications if they get back to a level of normalcy. I think part of it, like you said, when you have a billion and a half people, a lot of people moving into the middle class, when those people start getting out and spending money and traveling, and that creates a lot of economic activity that has probably been um, you know, somewhat restrained. And then also, you know, when you talk about supply chains and uh, some relief on, uh, on some of the supply chain issues that we've had you know, here in the US, that is also something that has been a little bit of a, a headwind to, to our economy. So I do think that is a positive once they get back to you know, kind of full scale, but some of the more nuanced questions around the geopolitical environment, we, we have better experts on that than me. <laughs> yeah, but it, I think it's honestly a very interesting one as it relates. Yes. Oh, they're no. going to open at some point. If you bet properly on that and you buy something that is very impacted by that opening up, you could make a great play right now. And then the question is where and, and when. And if you've got any kind of conviction on that, it really could end up being a fantastic investment. We've got a great team in um, in Asia on the real estate side, as well as the private equity side. And my guess is we're all over that. And like I said, in the US, it's much more around just getting back to a kind of a fully functioning economy, which in the US, China is a part of that, given how much of an impact they have on supply chains and many of our, you know, many of our industries here, including so real estate. I want to shift for a moment here, Chris, to mm -hmm. you're on the board of SEO. And yep. SEO is chaired by Henry Kravis, founder of KKR, one of the founders. And at SEO, one of the things that was noteworthy to me was that they create an ecosystem of excellence. And SEO got you your first internship on Wall Street. But kind of a little bit of a broader question, not specifically to SEO. They talk mm -hmm. about an ecosystem of excellence. You have yeah. been in a lot of ecosystems of excellence. You started out at St. Mark's School in Texas, clearly an ecosystem of excellence. You went on to Emory University, clearly an ecosystem of excellence. You went to Harvard Business School, another one. You went on to Goldman Sachs, another one, then to Apollo and then to KKR. Every one of those is an ecosystem of excellence. If you had to sit there and think about which one, and you're at KKR, so you're somewhat biased to it. So maybe we are, <laughs> let's just say KKR is the best ecosystem of excellence there possibly is. But best of the best. <laughs> the best of the best. But for a moment, Chris, just as you think about those ecosystems of excellence and what provided you with either the learning or the relationships to get to where you are today, which one of those ecosystems 
provided you with both the training and the relationships that got you to where you are. And they're all cumulative. And a St. Mark's is distinct from a Goldman Sachs. But if you could. I think when you put it like that, you need to get a start at some point. And so I can't be here talking to you if I didn't get the opportunity to go to St. Mark's, if I didn't get an internship in 1998 in the mortgage department at Chase Security. Like you said, they're all cumulative. And so when you think about like, what is the premise of SEO? It's a very simple premise that talent is evenly distributed. Opportunity has historically not been. And so what, what are we doing at SEO in all the different programs? We're just matching talent with opportunity. There's just been a gap there. And if you think about why that's important for our country, if we want to maximize you know, our productivity as a country. So if, we're, if we have excellent people that never actually get to an opportunity because they never they just never match up with it that's just that's a lost opportunity that's why the that's literally the name of the you know the organization sponsors for educational opportunity but it's about having the opportunity to go to wall street i didn't know anything about wall street my parents were both in healthcare but i worked hard and i found out that seo existed and i got an internship and that actually led to you know the next now 25 years of, of my career but without that internship we're not having this conversation. And you and I have spent plenty of time talking about women and minorities in commercial real estate and the fact that both of those groups are underrepresented. You've taken a significant leadership role, both inside of KKR, as well as in the industry, as it relates to trying to create opportunities, trying to recruit more women and minorities into the commercial real estate industry. Talk for a moment about what you've specifically done. And I think almost more importantly, Chris, where you've seen success. I think what's interesting about the real estate industry is it historically was um, you know, very much driven by families. And so there were a lot of families that owned properties. And then over time, some of those you know, businesses became more institutionalized. But you think about a lot of those families, there weren't minorities that, that owned a lot of real estate. And so it was a, um, an industry that was primarily father to son. And so there weren't women really in the industry as well. And so then you think about, well, what was the talent funnel into our industry? It probably was 30% of our industry, you know, were people that actually knew that the industry existed and was available to them from a um from an opportunity perspective. So over the last several years, what we've been trying to do it, whether it's SEO or at the PRIA Foundation or even what we're doing specifically here at KKR is really to open up the awareness about real estate and alternatives. This is an industry and it's a huge industry. It's a multi-trillion dollar employees, you know, millions and millions of people, but people just didn't think about it as a career. And so a lot of what we're doing with SEO or Girls Who Invest is just making people aware of it because it's not literally not rocket science, but it's a very exciting career and I think if we can broaden that funnel of people that know it exists and then bring people into the inter- in industry through internships and getting people exposed to it, like I was, I wasn't exposed through a family business. I was exposed through an internship, an investment bank. Then we're going to have more people that come in in the entry level and then have opportunities to grow. And then I think what all of our firms need to do, and this includes us, this includes you know Walker and Dunlap and others who are supportive of broadening this funnel is once people get to your organizations, it's what are we doing to make sure people feel comfortable, feel supported, feel like they have a career path within that organization. And those were things when you talk about early years at Goldman Sachs, I felt that there. 
And so I met people who I felt cared about me as a professional. And then that allowed me to get opportunities to, um, you know, grow, work on deals. And that's then kind of leads to a career at that point. But that's the continuum. And it's every step of the way, we all need to be, you know, doing our part because I think ultimately we'll have a better industry. I think we'll get more ideas in our industry. We'll get more diverse viewpoints at the table. And I think it's something that I feel like it's happening, but it's our industry is a little bit late to the late to the game there. I'd echo that. I guess the question I'd have is you talk about big corporations like Chase, where you had your first internship. What Jamie has done as far as a senior management team at JP Morgan Chase is unbelievable as it relates to the diversity that he's put at the very, very senior ranks. And Goldman Sachs similarly has put a lot of people, very diverse senior management team. I think one of the things that I consistently hear is that at the senior levels of many of the firms, whether they're property owners or whether they're services firms, that there aren't many mentors who look like the aspiring woman or look like the aspiring minority to have that type of a mentorship. If that's kind of what cracks the code, it's going to take us a very long time to move all that up there. So is there any shortcut to that? Because that mentor-mentee relationship women and minorities coming into the industry and saying, yeah. I can look at Chris Lee is super important to them understanding a career path, to them getting the advice, the counsel and the support, which we all need. I don't care how smart you are. We all need that support. We're all going to make mistakes. And I think in many instances, unless you've got someone who puts you under their arm and says, it's going to be okay tomorrow, many of us take a divergent path. And so without being able to you know, wave a magic wand and say, yeah. let's have our industry have at the top ranks look like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan Chase, what can we do? Well, I think that we have to believe that there are people that can mentor. The people that mentor you or sponsor you, I think those are two very different things, don't have to look like you. Like, why can't I be a mentor to a young woman? You know, why can't you? My, you know, the people that have mentored me over my career, a lot of them have been white males. And that I think we have to like break down that. Yes, representation matters. You want to be able to see someone that looks like you that's doing some of the same things. But ultimately, how you get up that career path, you need someone in your management chain to really believe in you and sponsor you. That's how my career has developed. And that's been um, you know, how I've been able to grow my career here. That was how I was able to grow my career at Goldman. It wasn't necessarily someone that looked like me, but it was someone that I found some common you know, interest with and I worked hard. And at the end of the day, people want you know, people that can help them you know, create value. I think that that's where we have to you know, really move the conversation is we all have to be comfortable mentoring people that might not look exactly you know, like us. And by the way, that's just one part of any of our you know, identities. There's all sorts of other things to build common ground around. But I think that that's going to be important if we want people to be able to advance their careers in organizations. That's such an important point. And I would say when we were focused on how we could do training and growth of women at Walker and Dunlop, one of the programs that we looked at and really thought had huge merit to it is a program they have at PNC Bank called Men as Allies. And so rather than just having a women's group and a women's initiative that is all female based, 
it's really using men to be exactly as you just said, the mentors and the and the proponents of growth of women inside their both specific groups as well as more broadly across the entire company. And we went and studied that program and implemented it at WD. And it, it's been wildly valuable to us as having men as allies and not just sort of saying women's growth and career pathing at WD has to be the responsibility of female executives and female managers. Exactly. I think we have to evolve the conversation more in that direction because there's no reason why someone can't mentor, you know, someone from different because at the end of the day, it's not just the mentorship, it's the sponsorship. And that's more important. Putting people in positions where they can be have visible opportunities to create commercial impact. That's what everyone wants an opportunity to do at Walker and Dunlap. That's what everyone wants to do at KKRs, have opportunities to create tangible commercial impact. And I don't think that has anything to do with, you know, someone's race or gender. We are out of time, Chris. I am super, super appreciative of you taking the time. I had all sorts of other things to talk about with you. <laughs> you and I will you and I'll have the opportunity over dinner to, to finish up on my questions list about a number of different things that influence your leadership style. But I'm uh, super appreciative of you spending this hour with me and giving all of us your insights on both how KKR real estate has become what it is and your views on the overall market today. And so just a big, big thank you for all you do and for spending the time with me. I appreciate it. As always, it's a, it's a lot of fun and it's my first webcast. It's a real pleasure. And, and we enjoy the business that we do with, with you, and, uh, you and Walker and Dunlop. So thanks for the opportunity and go Chiefs. Uh, yeah, we never even got to that. We, so, so anyone <laughs> understands the connection to that, the family that owns the Chiefs, are all St. Mark's uh, graduates. And so Chris is actually very good friends with the family. And uh, we were talking about the fact that they might go win the championship this weekend. So uh, there you go. A lot, Thanks, of Saint, a lot of St. Mark's people are Chiefs. I'm one of them. So go Chiefs. It's great. Have a great Super Bowl weekend. Thanks, Chris, very much. And everyone who joined us this week, thanks. And we'll see you again next week.